Hey Tractionville, we've got something new for you. We've been thinking, so many of you are running on EOS with a variety of experiences. And the best way we can help you execute the tools and components of EOS is to break them down and give you some tips on how to really use them well. That's why we're starting a new weekly segment called Tractionville Tips. In just five minutes, we'll give you our practical advice on how to navigate the challenges and roadblocks you face as you unlock the power of the EOS toolkit. Each week, we'll answer a specific question about a tool, break down a common issue, or provide a helpful tip that you can use in leading your team. Look for Tractionville Tips every Thursday, wherever you're enjoying this podcast. And if you've got a burning question, share it with us. You can submit your question at Tractionville.com or text ASKUS, A-S-K-U-S, to 555-888 to send us your question. And again, you can go to Tractionville.com or you can text ASKUS, A-S-K-U-S, to 555-888 and send us your questions. We're here to help you run on EOS and grow as you go. See you for Tractionville Tips every Thursday. If you look at the best teammates in your organization, what are the things that make them special? And what you what you learn is that you can become invaluable without ever being most valuable. And um, and we seldom celebrate those people. You know, they're the people that really hold it. They're the glue that hold the organization together. But we don't celebrate them because they don't ask the world to pay attention to them. Right? It's not about Hey, everybody notice me. I'm awesome. Welcome to Tractionville, the podcast for companies running on EOS. I'm your host, Chris White, along with... Benj Miller. And we have another co-host today, Mackenzie. Welcome to Tractionville. Welcome back. Welcome back. Yeah. Uh, we're excited today uh, to bring our listeners uh, Don Yeager. Don is a 11-time New York best-selling author and speaker. And uh, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Don has uh, been around a lot of uh, high-profile uh, people in his life. I'm sure he's got a bunch of stories. It'll be fun to try to get him to share some of those with us today. But Don, welcome to Tractionville. It's grateful. Thank you very much for having me. So I would I'm be like, surprised if people, they may not know your name, but they've probably experienced your work. You've, you've written so much, written for Sports Illustrated, and you, you've been able to capture so many people's story from, from history to sports, I think is prob- probably your, your primary domain. But then also um, tying that to business and just the, the lessons that you've learned in one category, being able to apply those to another. So as you write, I'm so curious just to start with what makes a great story? At the risk of sounding um, uh, a little cocky, I think, I think the thing that's always worked for me is that I'm pretty much, um, uh, I'm, I'm Joe Average in, in every way in that I, so I look at almost every project and I think through, would I read it, right? Would that intrigue me? And if it would, I chase it. If it wouldn't, I turn it down. And 
it um, it's the, the that little bit of intuition is going to serve me well. But I, I think the biggest piece of it for me is just trying to think and imagine um, who. I mean, for every project, and this may sound really overly simple, but for every project, um, we draw an avatar on the wall, or I, you know, I try to, um, and try to imagine this is the potential reader slash buyer slash listener slash audience member of this effort, and and then what 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 might I want to know about them? And you try to define the avatar. And then you then you keep that in mind the entire time. And if it's, you know, um, I don't write like George will for a reason, right? Uh, because the the avatar of those who read George will's content aren't my aren't my readers. Um, and uh, uh, so I'm I'm I think often about the person on the other end of the conversation, and um, and. And in that sense, it constantly reminds me that's who I'm writing for. And if I remember that, um, it allows me to pick uh, what I believe to be good stories. I've had the privilege of, of knowing Don for several years and experiencing his speaking ability, storytelling ability, and some of his writing. And pretty recently, I've, I, I've been reading um, a book he wrote uh, in collaboration with Michael Orr, um, the famous football player and, you know, the, the one in the blind side. And um, one of the things that, and Don, maybe you can speak to this some, some more about storytelling, but you do such an incredible job of bringing out the human story, even in the, um, in the professional, inside of the professional context, there's such a human story to be shared. And um, especially in the book that I've been reading recently, um, there's so much about his life and his, his emotional journey that, that you capture so well. Um, would you say that's, is that big for you as you're developing the stories that you're writing and the, and the avatar that you're um, writing to? It, it is. I, I just, I'm, I believe that that, that that person, that reader would love to, um, I mean, in this world, you can cap, you can get anything you want off a Google search or a Wikipedia search, right? If what you want is an inch deep, um, but if what you're looking for is to um, is to understand a subject, um, that's where I that's where I think that's that's where I I come in or that's where my job is. And but to get to there, you have to gain their trust, right? People don't tell you stories naturally. You have to gain their trust, and so um, that's a place I work a lot. I mean, Benj, back to your question earlier. You know, uh, um, so it's a, it starts with, would I be interested in reading this? Like, would it, or would I be happy with the two sentences on Wikipedia, right? And if I want more, um, then I want to make sure that what I'm getting is the more that will allow them to feel, them being the audience, whatever the audience might be, the, the buyer, uh, in, you know, to put it in, in terms of the entrepreneurs you might be serving. Um, but um, what is it that would make them better at doing what they need to do um, if they understood this story better, right? What, what could, 
And, and it's for whatever reason, I have no idea why, but from the time I was in um, high school, um, I remember, I mean, I, my, my favorite magazine ever to read was Sports Illustrated. So the idea that years later I would get to be one of those writers at the magazine was, you know, a mind-blowing experience. Um, to be amongst the talent that existed there was was off the charts. But I kept asking myself, even as a young reader, um, man, that's a really amazing story. I wonder what question that guy asked to get that story out of that person, right? Um, because again, for another lesson that might serve your entrepreneur as well, we, we, have to, we have to get good at asking questions. Um, we have to gain their trust, ask the right questions, listen intently. Um, and if you can do all of those things, you will find yourself in a deeper relationship with people, you know, and thus able to tell a better story about them. You don't need anyone's permission to change the world. At Roundtable Companies, we'll work together to discover your most compelling story for a book, film, or brand. Come to our table and tell your tale. We'll listen, and together we'll discover the story that needs to be told to create your greatest impact. Their clients say it all. Dr. Danny McVetty, founder and CEO of Lap of Love, said, RTC has made my lifelong dream of writing a book easier and more imaginative than I would have thought possible. I had no idea where or how to start, but with RTC, all I had to do was talk. They take my ideas, organize them, put color to my stories, and make them into a compilation that I'm incredibly proud of. This process has quite literally been a dream come true. Start telling your story today. Visit roundtablecompanies.com for more information. What does that process look like for you when you're, when you're deciding you're going to do a deep dive with somebody, you know, you're going to invest the time to, to put a whole book together on one specific person. How do you even go about that? Um, well, you know, I think a lot of it is, um, I, so I, I, I recently, um, was asked to, to come, um, work with a class of college students on this on a, a version of the subject and I, I drew a series of concentric circles right and said um, that if I'm out here and I decide I want to take on a subject right um, I'll share with you right now I'm uh, working on a book with uh, with a golfer named Bubba Watson right he's an amazing golfer um, but he's a fascinating study in, in, in human um, uh, behavior because, you know, the guy is like so creative with his mind in his profession. And yet, you know, he also can be his own worst enemy, right? He can, he can talk himself into um, uh, over... Um, uh, over imagining a set of circumstances for its potential catastrophe, right? Um, and so his mind works in both ways. It works for him and against him. Well, that's true of most of us, right? Um, but getting him to tell me 
stories about how his mind works in both directions then allows me because you could say what I just said and you go, Oh, that's cool. But that's kind of like all of us, or I could tell you a story about how he does it, but to get him to tell me the story that then I will tell you, you know, it starts with a, with an outer ring of a great deal of research. I mean, before I'm sitting down with Bubba for the first time, I mean, I've probably read, you know, 200,000 words of content about him. Um, you know, the equivalent of probably, you know, what you might consider four to five full length books. Right. Um, and that's magazine articles. And then I just devoured this content and in all of it, you're looking for those questions that he seems to get asked that he has got a really well-trained answer to slip by, right. Where he can say something, that, that, that most reporters will accept, but it really doesn't tell you anything. Um, and, and, and most of us have those answers in our life, right? Dealing with pain or dealing with um, um, exceptionalism. Most of us have places where we don't really want to tell you what we went through. So when you ask us, we've got some line that satisfies, but doesn't answer. Right. But, but to be, you have to read and study someone to look for where are those places that what they're doing is satisfying and not answering. And then, then the, the next layer of the next circle is which of these can I connect with him on? Like, where are there places where what he's going through or been through, I've been through where we can, where instead of it being, you know, here where he's the subject and I'm the lowly interviewer, right? It becomes a little more, it becomes a little bit more of a peer to peer conversation, yeah. right? Where we're sharing with each other. And then suddenly he's going, wow, I mean, this guy's more like me than I realize. Uh, now there's this little trust factor, which allows me to go to that inner core question and say, you know, so tell me, you know, have you ever, or did you think, or, you know, where was your mind really at that time? And, um, and suddenly they're going past that answer that they've given a thousand times and they're giving you, um, the answer that will reveal something special. So yeah, much deeper. Have you, have you found, you know, your, you, you, you've written a lot about sports and, and history. Um, with the books that you've written and, and the subjects of the books, I mean, Lou Hulse, Walter Payton, um, Tug McGraw, right? You, do, do you see a commonality across those people that you've interviewed and written about of what makes them great? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that there's a, um, I mean, the number one answer that I've heard over, you know, and I, and I actually, I, I did an exercise in which I asked this question, you know, what, if you could name a habit that you, um, that you went to work early in life on, on developing and, and making sure was a daily part of your ritual that you think 
separated you from other people, what would they have it be? And um, the number one answer was that at some stage in life, um, they learned to hate losing more than they love winning. That, um, that winning is um, winning is kind of what they, they, they believe is their birthright almost, you know? I mean, it is a, um, it's a, of course I'm gonna win. I'm really good, yeah, right? Sure. Um, failure, um, failure leaves a mark. And so it's those things where you start to realize, you know, I mean, I don't know if you had a chance to watch the Michael Jordan, um, you know, the series on ESPN, right? The Last Dance. But, um, you know, he so makes that clear to anybody and everyone that will watch it. Winning was good. Winning was nice. Yeah. Man, man. Did he hate failing? Yeah. And he hated failing, whether it was throwing dice against the police officers, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, throwing dice against the wall against the with the police officers who were there to offer services, security detail, or whether it was uh, golf, or whether it was uh, a shot in the um, uh, late in the game. Um, you know, he hated losing. Yeah, in a way that in a way that drove him um, right back to the gym or right back to whatever. Right. So. Well, yeah, I, I remember when when he left um, the Bulls um, for baseball, and you know, there's all kinds of opinions on that. Right. Uh, Tim Tebow's experienced the same thing, but but the unique thing about like with Michael that work ethic, what you're talking about, going back to the gym. I just remember. Um, reading a story uh, when he was pursuing baseball that, you know, he was, he wasn't doing too good at the plate, uh, but he was always the first guy there and the last guy to leave. Like literally after batting practice, everybody's going home. He'd go back to the coach and say, you know what? I think I'm getting a little better. Can we do a hundred more? And he'd do a hundred more before he left. And it's, it's that, hating to to lose more than winning and that that one thing inside him that just makes him go right back to the batter's box or right back to the gym um to perfect the, their their craft because they're never satisfied right they're just they're not satisfied don you've now leveraged a lot of these observations uh into the world of business teaching speaking on uh, leadership team building how, well, how did that transfer take place? So while I was at Sports Illustrated, um, the, uh, the magazine actually had a little bit of a speaker's bureau. And if you were um, uh, an advertiser or a partner with the magazine, you could uh, ask for and, um, you know, and, and, a, and a writer might come to your, let's say you've got a, a hundred clients with you at the master's. And you're looking for a, um, uh, and you're, you know, you want to entertain these clients in an evening. And so, you know, and a Sports Illustrated writer shows up to tell stories. It's usually, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good gig, right? And, um, and I loved doing those things. I loved it when the opportunity was presented to me, when the magazine asked. And I was one of the few writers who did. You know, most writers are writers for a reason, right? Um, and I, um, and so I, I just 
I would gobble those things up. So when the when the magazine uh, was looking to do buyouts and other things, um, it totally made sense for me because I I already envisioned another career. Um, I I already saw that that the business people are often fascinated by highly competitive folks in from another um, from another that see the world from another perspective. And there, and if you're open, you know, I mean, I always hate it when I hear someone go, Oh, I could live. I would, if I never heard another sports analogy again at a business meeting, I'd be so happy. And I think, gosh, you know, what a fool you are, right? Does that mean all that mattered? The only stories that could ever resonate with you are stories of people in your industry. You know, you are, you should, you should want to listen to the Navy SEAL and you should want to listen to the, you know, the, the, the climber who, the blind climber who, you know, summits, you know, the greatest mountains in the world. You should want to listen to people who push themselves beyond because it should inspire something within you. And if you immediately turn it off because it's sports, then to me, uh, shame on you, right? And, um, and so I probably just offended people in your audience, but it just, they need to realize that anytime you can learn from, right? Not just hear stories about, but learn from high performers, dude, that is, that is what life should be about. And so I realized I had, I had this access for many years that I would continue to be able to build upon um, that would allow me to keep writing books and that, that if I could take their stories of high performance and make them work for a business audience, um, that I could make a dollar or two speaking. And um, uh, I had no idea that a few years later I would be standing, I'd be doing that 90 times a year, which was crazy um, and um, overwhelming and uh, too much, frankly. And so um, we, yeah, but, but we've, uh, I've enjoyed kind of creating intersections there. Don, you've talked about greatness as individual performers, but you've also studied what makes great teams. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I was doing the individual greatness speech often, and then a guy from Microsoft grabbed me and said, man, we love high-performer individuals, but why are some teams capable of doing what others can't? Why are, why, why are some teams up and down and up and down? And it's true in business as it is in sports, um, but, then, but then there's this elite few who manage to stay at or near the top for long periods. So I started building a list and over a five-year window, went to study 110 of those teams. Um, I added two dozen businesses to the list so that I kind of had a little bit of a mixture. And, um, and yeah, it was a wonderful discussion to get into how do you take the, the dynamics of, um, of an individual group of contributors and get them to head in the same direction. Um, and and uh, obviously the number one answer or, uh, that we discovered that came up over and over and over again was that the best teams don't just 
um, know their why. I mean, that's like this great um, Simon Sinek discussion. I mean, I love Simon, but you know, where he says, know your why, why do you do what you do? Why is it important? Right. But, but they, but the best teams go that next level, which is they feel their why. Um, and they make sure that everyone within the organization can make a visceral connection to the collective purpose. It's not enough that the entrepreneur, the CEO feels why what we do matters. It really, um, th this takes hold and changes organizations when that why um, seeps all the way through the organization. Yeah. And when it, um, when it waters the roots, man, and when it does, you can't stop it. It's powerful yeah. stuff. Don, I'm setting you up a little bit here because um, I'm going to promote, you've got some courses on your website, donyeager.com. We'll, we'll put them in the show notes. Um, but you've got some master classes on what makes great uh, performers, what makes great teams. And the third bucket on there is what makes a great teammate. So give us a, a, a little snippet inside look into to that and we'll encourage everybody to go check those out deeper. But tell us, tell us where that heads. Super, yeah. I mean, I, it, I just had, I had this unique experience a couple of years ago. This will make Chris happy, um, where a um, a member of the Chicago Cubs baseball team, um, who had been a friend of mine for many years, and encouraged me to to tell his story. And um, uh, and you know, we were having fun with it. And then, but then, uh, ultimately, I, I was laughing. I was like, "You're a backup catcher. Like nobody wants to know your story." Right. And um, and then he started sharing a story with me about how he lost his job uh, midway through his career. But it was because he was so self-centered. He was a good enough player to be on a roster, but he didn't make others better because he was always worried about his production, his numbers, his contract. And uh, and what we learned was um when he lost his job, he didn't do the traditional, well, it's everybody else's fault. He actually said, what can I learn from this moment? And what he realized was that if he were going to get a chance to, to continue to play baseball, uh, it was only gonna be because he would have to change his image. He would have to learn how to become a great teammate, right? And to do that, he had to, um, uh, he, he actually, it was a very intentional effort and, and the way he went about it, very, very cool. But, but telling that story, um, and it just happened that, that the year we're telling the story and, and we're working on the book happens to be the year that they win the World Series. Um, the year that the last at bat he has in game seven of the World Series is, is a home run, right? The year in which when the Cubs win the World Series and he's being interviewed afterward, um, his teammates come over and they lift him on their shoulders and they carry him from the field. And he's a backup catcher, right? Gets carried from the field. And... Um, and so working together with him to write the book, his name is David Ross. He's currently the Grandpa, of Grandpa Rossi. Yeah, and he, um, uh, working to help him tell that story, led to this really neat discussion around what does it mean to be a great teammate in your organization? 
um, he defined it for his, but what does it mean in yours? Like what would, if you look at the best teammates in your organization, what are the things that make them special? And what you, what you learn is that you can become invaluable without ever being most valuable. Mm. And, um, and we seldom celebrate those people, you know, yeah. they're the people that really hold it. They're the glue that hold the organization together, but we don't celebrate them because they don't ask the world to pay attention to them. Right. It's not about, Hey, everybody noticed me. I'm awesome. Um, and, um, and so, the opportunity to tell David's story, to do that book, um, turned out to be really great for me. I think you just dropped like three nugget bombs in there. That, that was so good. But did I hear you correctly that you, the, what makes a great teammate in your organization is very personal to the organization? Absolutely. Yeah. Because there's some organizations where, um, uh, where maybe because of the way the uh, the structure is uh, is built, or that the um, you know especially now, right? As we look at organizations that may become more home based, um, you may not get the opportunity to execute on that one thing that you used to think was really important in the way you were a great teammate, right? Where you constantly cleaned up the refrigerator at work, right? When no one else in the office did. Um, uh, and by the way, when you do it at home, no one notices, FYI. Um, so uh, the, the there, there may be different things that, that, that play into, um, yeah, it's, I mean, we did this, I, this speech to, uh, for, um, you know, the officer and crew of uh, one of America's uh, most powerful nuclear submarines, the USS Florida. And, uh, and days later, they were shipping out to, to you know, um, prepare to learn, lay nuclear waste to the rest of the world if they needed to. But in the process, they sat down as a crew and decided what does it take to become a great crewmate, right? And they built their own list. And it was really cool. They shipped it to David and I, and we got to look at it and go, wow, how cool is that? You know, we did this for Alabama football. And next thing you know, there's a note that comes back from Alabama football. They sat down and said, hey, what does it mean to be a great teammate? And they they had answers that were different than, than other places. So, you know, uh, cultures will define that in some ways. And, um, and so it's a, it's an important exercise. Don't just take David's list. Um, make your own. Right. That's such a great tangible takeaway we could all go do for our organizations. Don, we're running out of time. I think we could talk all day. Uh, we're running out of time. Um, we're definitely going to send people over to your website where they can Please, find you. all your books, your courses, maybe get you come speak. But as you're thinking about our audience of, of entrepreneurs out there, founders, visionaries, people that are, are creating businesses, creating places where these teams can thrive. What's, what's on your mind right now? If you could leave us with one piece of advice or wisdom or encouragement, what would you have for the community? Well, I think, um, you know, the one thing that really in that community needs to stay front and center, especially right now, is this. We have to find ways to continue to remind 
um, ourselves and others about this sense of purpose question, right? There's a reason why we why we were founded and came together. There's a there's a there's a hole in the universe we we were attempting to solve. Um, but some days in all of this other junk that's happening in our world, um, we can forget um, the what that hole was and why we do it and why it matters and who it matters to and who the ultimate end result is aimed at at, um, at benefiting. And so getting ourselves back reconnected to some of that um, would be an enormously impactful exercise for every one of those who you're listening, who are listening here. I'm going to put you in the hot seat before I let you go. What's your favorite book you've written? Uh, so I'm going to lean on McKinsey's old boss, uh, John Maxwell, who whenever he gets asked that question, he says, it's the one I'm working on now. Uh-huh. Uh, because if you have more than one child, you know, um, we, we all know that there are favorite children. I know it. I was my parents' favorite child and my sisters all know it too, by the way. Um, but, uh, but we, you know, you can't say it. So, uh, I, I would just tell you, I love, I love, um, I'm blessed that I've got a chance to tell a lot of great stories yeah. and many more are on the horizon. All right. Well, sounds like you might have a political future on the horizon too, with that answer. <laughs> yeah. I won't dig anymore. I guess we no. didn't enter that, that inner circle on the Thank of, you. Of trust, but I won't push you on that anymore. Don, pleasure having you on Tractionville. Hope you enjoyed it. Share it with a friend and we'll see you back here next Tuesday for Tractionville Tuesday.